0: Well, good morning. good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter? We're going to be in chapter 1. I love this chapter of Scripture, and especially the part that we're going to be working through this morning. And it has been an anchor for my faith for many, many years. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to have a moment of real transparency, just you and me, Do believers ever have doubts about their faith? Maybe even pastors? Do you ever have times of doubt? Is there ever a moment where you look at the world around you and you just wonder, am I wrong about all this? Are these just legends that have developed over thousands of years? Have I simply partaken in the opiate of the masses, as Mark said? Maybe you're going through something in life that's really difficult or disappointing. And as you lie awake in the middle of the night and all those things are swirling around in your mind, then it happens, this moment where doubt enters into your mind. It it wouldn't be unlike Peter. He steps out of the boat in faith and he has his eyes fixed on the Lord and then the reality of the wind blowing on his face and the the waves slapping up against his legs, he has a moment of doubt. Or Sarah, who was walking faithfully alongside her husband Abraham, but then God tells her something that was almost too difficult to believe. He said at 90 years old, you're going to have a baby And what did she do? In a moment of doubt, she laughed. She laughed and God heard her. So do men and women of faith ever have moments of doubt? Do men and women of valor ever experience fear? Yeah, certainly. Valor wouldn't be valor without fear. And faith wouldn't be faith without the real possibility and even reality of doubt. And so, um, what do you do when you have a moment of doubt? How do you handle that? For me, I go back to two unshakable truths. One of those is the complexity of life. And another is prophecy and scripture. Those two things for me. I kind of think analytically. I'm like a, you know engineering mind, and those two things just really settle my heart. And we talked a little bit about the complexity of life last uh, last Sunday, I believe it was, the fact that the human brain has more than a billion neurons, each one forming more than a thousand connections, so you end up with over a trillion connections in the human brain. And it has a storage capacity of 2.5 petabytes or 3 million hours of recorded television. 342 years of TV that your brain can store. I mean, it's incredible. And that's just the brain. The DNA and the cells of your body have a data storage capacity equal to 150 zettabytes. That's 150 with 21 zeros after it. Here's some perspective, it's 15 times the national debt in dollars, (laughs) that's a a lot. If you took every server, hard drive, laptop, iPad, cell phone, and flash drive in the world, you could take all of that data and store it within your brain, the DNA in your brain, 15 times over. You have greater storage capacity than 15 times the world's storage, data storage. It's incredible. And on top of that, the cells that house this DNA, they're self-replicating and error-correcting. They are basically a masterpiece of nanotechnology. And that's just a small taste of the complexity of life. It, It boggles my mind. And... I know for certain this did not happen by chance. I'll stake my life on it. This screams that we have a creator God. But another thing that I find totally convincing is the prophetic certainty of Scripture apologetics and prophecy in scripture to me. When I'm having a moment of doubt, I go back to that and it settles my soul. And that's what the text is focusing on this morning. And so the message title is this, it's Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. And we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, with two parts to the outline. First, we want to look at the historic reality in verses 16 through 18, and then the prophetic certainty in verses 19 through 21. So again, it's a pretty short text, so I want to read through it first, and then we'll begin working through it. So in verse 16. Peter writes this to a persecuted church. He says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I want to, he touches on two points, and I want to look first at the historic reality in verses 16 through 18. I said a couple weeks ago that Christianity is not a mystical religion. It's built upon rational, historical, objective knowledge of God, both intellectual and experiential. We're going to look at the intellectual aspect of that this morning as we jump into our text. And and Peter begins in verse 16 by saying, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And the Apostle John said something very similar in 1 John 1.1. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then in Acts chapter 4 verse 20, Peter and John together said this, For we cannot help speaking about that which we have seen and heard. There's an emphasis on the fact that these men were eyewitnesses. And this that they have written, these are eyewitness accounts. They saw the events with their own eyes. There's one gospel writer who did not, and that's Luke. He didn't see it firsthand, but listen to what he writes in Luke chapter 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Even though Luke didn't see these things himself... They were, he got the information firsthand from the eyewitnesses and he recorded it so that we may know with certainty. So Peter starts out, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Think of some of the things that Peter saw. Imagine for a minute being Peter. It all began one day when Jesus said, come follow me. He said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. He had no idea of the things that his eyes would see. Just a few verses later, it says in Matthew 4, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people everyone. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. Everybody was coming out to see this and he was healing every kind of disease and sickness. And then one night, Peter and the other disciples were with Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee by boat. And it says in Matthew 8, without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, mind you, these are seasoned sailors, fishermen. And they're freaking out at this storm that came up suddenly. Jesus replied, oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Peter saw that. He was in the boat. Again and again, he saw Jesus demonstrating power over the natural realm, creation, He saw him demonstrating power of the physical realm with death and disease and healing it and and over the spiritual realm, driving out demons. He even saw Jesus raise a little girl to life again. He saw some remarkable, miraculous things. I heard about a woman who traveled a lot on business, and she didn't like flying, so she brought her Bible, and she was reading it, but the businessman next to her kind of smirked at her and said, see, you got your Bible. Do you really believe all that? And she said, well, yes, sir, I do. He says, you even believe the miracles in there? Well, yes, it's a Bible, I do. He goes, so you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great whale and spit up again? She said, yes, I believe it. He said, well, how could he have survived all that time in the belly of a whale? And she said, well, I don't know. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. And he says, well, what if he isn't in heaven? And she said, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) She believed. Jesus affirmed the account of Jonah. It wasn't just a fish story. He said, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. It was pointing forward to Jesus. But there's another event that Peter speaks of specifically in our text. Something else that he saw. It says in verse 17, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased Peter writes, "We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on this sacred mountain." So the account that's being described here is the transfiguration of Jesus. It's recorded in three of the Gospels, and it's where Jesus took the disciples up on this mountaintop, and right before him, he was transfigured. He his form changed. And his, his glory, which had been veiled, it wasn't voided, but it was veiled, suddenly the veil was pulled back, and they were able to see Jesus in all of his glory, and all of his splendor. It was this, the word is metamorpho, which sounds familiar, huh? Metamorphous, to change from one state to another. And so, Jesus was God in human flesh, but they hadn't seen much of his true glory. They saw some of the works he did, but now that veil was pulled back, and they saw this themselves. In Matthew 17, it says, uh, There he was transfigured before him, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, It is good to be here. Now, Peter was totally one of the duh disciples. (laughs) You know, I mean, duh. It's good that we are here. And he he just so enamored by what's happening he doesn't even know what to do and he starts he starts talking if you wish i will put up three shelters one for you one for moses and one for elijah and it says while he was still speaking rambling on a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said this is my son whom i love with whom i am well pleased Listen to him. In other words, stop talking, Peter. Shut up and listen to Jesus. This is my son. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. What is this all about? Well, it gave Peter yet one more view of the power and the majesty of Jesus firsthand, eyewitness. But it was more than that. It was also pointing forward to some future events. One of those is the return of Christ, when we will see his glory revealed. Peter's mentioned this. If you search the word revealed, it's in First and Second Peter a whole bunch of times. And he talks about when his glory is revealed. Peter saw it then, we're going to see it when Christ returns. And then, and then it also points to the resurrection of the dead. And when those who are in Christ will be raised, and listen to what Philippians 3.21 says. It says, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We'll be transformed, metamorphosed. These bodies, broken bodies with our aches and pains and our, and our propensity to sin, our brokenness, it'll be gone. And we will be like Jesus. We'll have a glorified body. Won't that be awesome? I heard about this Amish man who went to a shopping mall with his son. And they were fascinated by pretty much everything they saw, but especially these silver walls that would slide apart and then slide back together again. And his son said, Father, what is that? And the Amish man says, Son, I know not what it is. And they just watched it with, you know, marvel. And then an elderly lady rolled up in a wheelchair and she pushed the button and the silver walls slid open. And she went inside to a little room and the walls closed again. And then these numbers counted up and came back down again. And as they watched, all bright-eyed, the silver walls opened up again, and a 24-year-old beautiful woman stepped out. (laughs) The man says to his son, Quick, go get your mother. (laughs) He thought he'd seen some kind of metamorphosis (laughs) right there. We will be changed. We will be like Jesus Christ in his glorified body. And so Peter got to see a little taste of what this would be like. We haven't seen it yet, but Peter recorded it as an eyewitness. So why does he talk about it here? Why do you suppose he brings up this account? Well, notice how it ties into what he just spoke of. He's talking about Jesus' power and his glory. And if you just look back at verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 1, It says, his divine power has given us, you and me, believers, it's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Peter saw that divine power that he speaks of. And then in verse 4, he says, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in his divine nature. Peter saw his divine nature. It allows him to write about this firsthand. And that's what's behind his words in verse 16 when he said, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He saw the power and the glory of Jesus and that's what he's writing about. The Bible contains accurate historical eyewitness accounts. Now someone might say, well, yeah, Paul, but these guys could have written anything they wanted. They they, they could have just claimed that this happened. That doesn't make their testimony true. And even if what they wrote was true, that was 2,000 years ago. It could have changed. It could have been embellished like a big fish story that just keeps getting bigger and more magnificent as time goes by. So the skeptic would then raise two questions. Number one, were the accounts accurate to begin with? And were they embellished or exaggerated over time? They're good questions. Were they accurate to begin with? Well, first of all, know that those writers had no reason, no reason at all for writing a fictitious account. I'm behind again. Barely into, they had no reason for writing a fictitious account. They weren't searching for fame or fortune. In fact, almost every one of those gospel writers would end up being brutally tortured and killed for their testimony of what they saw and what they heard. They weren't in it for the money, they weren't in it for the fame. They had no reason to write a fictitious account. Chuck Colson, before he was a Christian, he was well known for his role in the Watergate scandal. Remember that? He was a special counsel to President Nixon. And, And Chuck Colson later said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, he writes? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. He says Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't even keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. They were beaten and tortured. They had no reason to give a fictitious account, and not one of them recanted. So for one, they had no reason to, to, to lie about it. But beyond that, there wasn't enough time between the events and the writing about the events for myths about Jesus to develop and grow. All of the accounts in the New Testament were written within about 50 years of when they actually occurred there were still scores of eyewitnesses alive at the time as these accounts were being circulated and if those were not true they would have certainly stood up and said this is false this didn't happen this is baloney but not even jesus opponents not even the enemies of the gospel denied the things that happened they didn't in fact they 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 actually reinforced the account So, for example, it's been about 20 years since the 9-11 situation, right? What if I wrote a book that said, the Twin Towers in New York fell when a great earthquake hit the city? What would happen? Millions of people would say, you're nuts. That's not what happened. We were there. We saw it. There's still eyewitnesses around. So the same point, if somebody would have written several hundred years later, maybe they could have falsified it. And who was going to say that it didn't happen that way? But these accounts were, were in circulation very shortly after the actual event. So there was no time for a mythological Jesus to, to develop and spread. But what about the fact that they were written 2,000 years ago? Couldn't they have been exaggerated over that time? Some have alleged that the Bible is like a game of telephone, where it would this translation and then it was retranslated and a translation of a translation of a translation. And so the end result looks nothing like how it started. But the fact is, there are more than 14,000 early transcripts of the New Testament in different languages. And when you apply the science of textual criticism, it will tell you that those accounts are 99.5% pure. 14,000. If you take other historic writings from that time frame, Greek and Latin authors like Plato and Aristotle and and Caesar and Tacitus, we have between one and 20 manuscripts of those. Nobody questions it. But here's 14,000. And when they apply the science of textual criticism, 99.5% accurate. And the small number of variations that are there have no real consequence to what the text is saying. It doesn't change anything. They're like spelling or punctuation differences. This is a level of accuracy that is unheard of in ancient literature. On top of all this, there's records of Jesus apart from the Bible. There are about 18 non-Christian sources that wrote that, that wrote about Jesus within the first 150 years of his death. Historians like Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian, and others. And they corroborated major events in his life, such as his birth, his ministry, his miracles, his death, even his resurrection accounts from outside the Bible. On top of that, there's more than 25,000 archaeological discoveries which corroborate the accuracy of the Bible. And there's hundreds more being made every single year. We can have great confidence in the eyewitness accounts we're reading. Maybe you say, yeah, but that's not enough for me. Okay, Peter doesn't stop there. Because he looks secondly at the prophetic certainty in verses 21, or excuse me, 19 through 21. Listen to what 19, verse 19 says in the NIV translation. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, I think the NIV translation is a little bit off here. I, I, I think it leaves it a little bit confusing when it says we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Like, you know, we had the word of the prophets and now we're sure about the word of the prophets. But that's not what it's saying. The ESV does a better job here. It says we and we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. Or in another translation we have the more sure word of prophecy. What it's saying is the fulfilled prophecy of scripture is even more certain than if you were there as an eyewitness yourself. Peter says, we saw this, I heard it, I saw it, I was there, but we have something even more certain, the prophetic word of scripture. How could that be more certain than an eyewitness account? I mean, seeing is believing, right? I'd want to see it with my own eyes. But God's saying you have something even better. You have the prophetic word. So I want to look at that. Prophecy. Prophecy is simply this. It's history written in advance. Think about that. History written in advance. And I say it's God's calling card. It's how he identifies how he validates himself and his word. It's only possible because God is the author and God is outside of time. Listen to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46. Or what Isaiah records, it says, "I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make the I make known the end from the beginning." From ancient of times, what is still to come. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Because nobody else can do this. There is no one like me. I am God. This is how you'll know my word. I'll tell you what's going to happen before it does. God alone knows the end from the beginning. Prophecy is his calling card. About 28% of the Old Testament and 21% of the New Testament is predictive prophecy. That's a lot. That's a quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Why is there so much? Because God intended for fulfilled prophecy to demonstrate the divine origin of his word. What about other religions and their holy books? Every religion has its holy book, right? You got the Book of Mormon. You got the Quran. You got these different books. What about those? Most of them have no prophecy at all. And the ones that do, first of all, only the ones that came along after Jesus have any prophecy. It's almost like a me too. And the prophecy that's in there is vague at best. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, made some prophecies in the 1800s. He said the destruction of New York City and Boston was imminent. But it never happened. Most of his prophecies have already been proven wrong. And God's standard for prophetic accuracy is 100%. He said, if somebody claims to speak in my name, this was a command for the nation of Israel. If somebody said, thus saith the Lord, and it isn't 100% accurate, you're to kill them. I don't want these imposters going out from my people. So it was a high standard. The Quran contains some prophecies. But they're at best vague. I, I went on, I think it's alIslam.org, and I looked up their prophecy and the number one fulfilled prophecy in the Quran. You ready? Brace yourself. It's fingerprints. <laughs> okay, okay, this is it. I'm going to read you the verse in the Quran. Their skins will bear witness against them as to what they have been doing. And the commentary says that fingerprints, fingerprint systems at the borders, criminal investigation cells, and immigration centers prove the fulfillment of this Quranic prophecy. Okay, (laughs) that's number one. Another top example is that of genetic engineering. The text reads, they will alter Allah's creation. And the commentary says, the Holy Quran has prophesied the plastic surgery, genetic engineering, and cloning in this short and concise sentence. I'm, I must have missed that. Because <laughs> all I heard was they will alter Allah's creation. Like I said, vague, wide open to where you could interpret it any way you want. It's bound to come true. I chopped down that tree, I altered. Allah's creation, prophecy fulfilled, right? The little bit of prophecy in these other holy books really is vague, but by contrast, the prophecies in the Bible are detailed and they're specific. For instance, God prophesied that the Jews would be taken captive by Babylon in Jeremiah 25. And not only that, he said who would take them captive, how long they would be captive, and who would set them free. He gave the name of the man who would free them, Cyrus, 150 years before Cyrus was even born. That's not vague. That's very detailed and specific. We're going to look at more specifics in a minute. But look what verse 20 says. It says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets were actively involved in the writing of the prophecy, just like all of Scripture they, you see in the Gospels the personality of the different writers, the technical details of Luke the doctor. You see all of the, you see their own personality, but it was God breathed, God inspired, God speaking through them, so that the end result was exactly what He wanted. In, in fact, it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That same uh, that same phrase is used in Acts 27 when it speaks of a of a, a ship, a sailboat being driven along by the wind. So they put up their sail. God filled it. God inspired them. He inspired the words that came through to prophet. Sometimes the 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 scripture writers, the prophets, they scratch their head, going, <laughs> "What is this talking about?" We saw this in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11. You might just flip back there. Here's what it says, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They didn't understand it. They were involved in writing this, but they didn't know exactly what it meant. It was God speaking through them. So why is prophecy so important? Why is a quarter of the Bible filled with prophecy? And I think we don't talk about it enough. Why is it so important? Because God doesn't want us to mistake His word for some other writing And he doesn't want us to mistake some other person as the Savior. He wants us to know this is his word and Jesus is the Savior. It's estimated that over the ages there have been some 2,000 men claiming to be Jesus, the Messiah. 2,000 men. Some of them have been in our own time. Charles Manson, David Koresh. Sun, Sun Young Moon, he was the founder of the Unification Church. How would you know who to believe? They all have a, a story to tell. They all have their writings. How do you know who's really the Messiah and who's not? The answer is prophecy. It says, we have something more sure than seeing it with your own eyes. We have the prophetic word. And the Old Testament contains different types of prophecy. There's what are called types of Christ. They're a foreshadowing. They're people and events that point forward to something yet future. And when they happened and were recorded, the authors had no idea What it was all about. Scripture is written by 40 writers on three different continents over 1,600 years. And it all fit together masterfully in a way that no writer could have ever intended or engineered. God did. He was the author. So there's these types foreshadowings They're throughout the Bible. They're in almost every book. And then there's the detailed, specific prophecies of Christ. So here's an example of some of the types that we see. And once again, I'm behind. <laughs> I'm going to give my wife a second clicker so that <laughs> she can just sit there and keep me on uh, pace. But at least you go back on the website, you can read it in order <laughs> at your leisure. Okay, so... Types of Christ. In in every book, Genesis 3, you find this animal that God sacrificed to make a covering for Adam and Eve. In Exodus, the next book, Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. Exodus 16, the manna from heaven, which is the bread of life. Exodus 17, the rock at Horeb and the living water. These are pointing forward to Jesus. Leviticus 16, the scapegoat. Numbers 21, the bronze serpent. Jesus said, as as a serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who looked to him might be healed. It was acting out prophecy. Deuteronomy 4, the city of refuge. The whole book of Ruth and the kinsman redeemer. All of these point to Jesus. Again and again, almost every book of the Bible. These are types or foreshadowings of Christ. You don't really recognize them until you look at them in retrospect. But that's what allows us to go back into the Old Testament. Remember when Jesus, when he was on the road to Emmaus, he said to the disciples after his resurrection, they didn't know who he was, and he opened up the scripture and beginning with Moses and the prophets. That's the first five books. He began to show them how all the scripture speaks of him. He started saying, look, that bronze serpent, that's talking about me. That, that, that rocket horror, that living water, that's talking about me. And he showed them all of these things. But these are just the foreshadowings. The Old Testament also contains more than 300 detailed, specific prophecies of Jesus himself. And don't miss this point. The Old Testament was completed and circulated. It was a bestseller 200 years before Jesus was born. Okay, so it's not like they wrote it in retrospect. Anybody can do that. You, you see a building burned down and you write a prophetic account the next day and pretend it was from the week before. This was in circulation before he was ever born. He's the only individual for whom the details of his life were laid out before he was born. Why? So you wouldn't miss the fact that this is God's son. So here, here's just a few examples of how specific. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born to a virgin. Imagine writing that as a prophet, okay? You put up your little sail and, and what? <laughs> because you know, you write that down and that doesn't come true. They could kill you. What are you saying? Born of a virgin and they're writing this out? His birth would trigger a massacre of infants, He would perform miraculous healings, giving sight to the blind, life to the dead. He'd make the lame walk. He would enter Jerusalem in triumph, riding on a donkey. He would be rejected by his own people. He'd be betrayed by one of his followers. The price for the betrayal was named specifically as 30 pieces of silver. Not only was the price named, but they said that what would happen to it? The silver would go to the potter by way of the temple, just as it did. The disciples would scatter. He'd be tried and condemned. Though innocent, he wouldn't offer a defense. The Messiah would be struck and spat on by his enemies. He would be mocked and insulted. He would die by crucifixion. And this is depicted vividly in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. It's a vivid depiction of death on a cross. His hands and feet would be nailed. He would suffer with criminals and he would pray for his enemies. He would be given vinegar and gall to drink. They would cast lots for his garments. None of his bones would be broken despite all of the beating and and, and crucifixion. He would die as a sacrifice for sin. And get this, he would rise to life again. How would you like to be that prophet? Pretty tough call. That's just a few of the 300 prophecies of Jesus. And they're very specific. Now we've covered this before, but in light of what we just saw in last week's message... It's worth repeating, right? It's worth repeating. In 1963, Peter Stoner, he was science professor at Westmont College. He did extensive research on the mathematical prophecy or probability, the odds of various numbers of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah being fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. And he wrote this book, Science Speaks, Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy and the Bible. And here's what he did. He added up the combined likelihood and divided it by the number of people born over the past 2,000 years. And he found this. He found that the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies by chance, the odds was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one out of one with 17 zeros after it. That is a huge number. To try to comprehend a number like that, Stoner said, let me help you out. He said, cover the entire state of Texas. It's like 900 miles wide by 600 miles. He said, cover it two feet deep with silver dollars. And take one silver dollar and paint it red, and then fly over in a helicopter and drop it somewhere, and then get a big spoon and stir up the whole state. Somewhere in that thousands, hundreds of thousands of square miles is one red silver dollar. Then send a guy into the state blindfolded and let him just pick out one silver dollar. And if he gets the red, that's the odds. One in ten to the seventeenth power. <laughs> that's just seventeen. Or I'm sorry. That's just eight of the prophecies. It's it's hard to imagine that. But then he goes on. He says, if you were to increase the fulfillment of Messianic prophecies to only 16, the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 56th power. That'd be equal to taking a ball of silver dollars with the radius 30 times the distance between the earth and the sun. (laughs) That is one huge ball of silver dollars, and only one of them is painted red. Scientists say that if we go beyond one in 10 to the 50th power, one with 50 zeros, that it's statistically impossible. One in 10 to the 50th power. But this is one in 10 to the 56th power. It's statistically impossible for any man to fulfill 16 of these prophecies by chance. Nonetheless, Stoner say, well, let's go a little further. He said, let's increase the fulfillment of these prophecies to only 48. Still far short of the total number of 300 plus. I've seen numbers of 350. But let's say it's 48. The odds of one man fulfilling just 48 of those by chance. You first of all have to be born in Bethlehem. You'd have to die this way. You'd have to all of these things. That number jumps to 1 in 10 to the 168th power. One chance out of one with 168 zeros after it. Silver dollars are too big to use for this illustration. Stoner said, you can't do that. we got to go to something small, way small. Microscopic, not even visible under a microscope, but atoms. Atoms. We've got to go to atoms. There are 10 quadrillion atoms in a grain of rice. <laughs> ten quadrillion. He said, so let's use those. He said, Now take a ball containing every atom in the universe. Remember there's a hundred billion stars in our in our galaxy, and there's a hundred billion galaxies in the universe, and that's just what we can see. He said, Take every one of those atoms, ten quadrillion in a grain of rice, all of them. That's not enough. There's only ten to the sixty-six atoms in the universe. He says, now make a ball of atoms for every atom in the universe. Make a ball for every atom in the universe times that number again. And it's still not enough. He said, then repeat that every second for 3 billion years. I'll give you another 10 to the 17th. But altogether, that's still over 100 million times short of what you need to fulfill 48 prophecies by chance. And there's over 300. So after he had done all of this, I mean, it got absurd. After he had done all of this, Professor Stoner submitted his figures to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation, and they verified that his calculations were accurate and dependable. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Now, I hear a phrase going around these days, You've probably heard it. Follow the science. Follow the science. Have you heard it? Especially in Illinois. Keep hearing it. We're going to follow the science. But what I find is most people only follow the science when when it's ideological convenient, ideologically convenient, or politically expedient. Then they'll follow the science. I don't hear it applied to things like the binary nature of gender. Why are we following the science there? Or the absurdity of Darwinian evolution, or the prophetic certainty of Christ. Then there's there's a real tendency to just dismiss the science. But Peter writes, We have something more sure the prophetic word. And he says, To which you will do well to pay attention. Prophecy in Scripture. We're just wrapping this up. A lot of very intellectual people have gone about disproving Jesus. They endeavored to disprove the accounts about Jesus. But when they looked at the evidence, they ended up actually giving their life to the Lord and becoming ardent proponents of Jesus Christ because the evidence is so overwhelming. You'd have to just intentionally not look or just intentionally distort what's there to not look at that. If you look at it objectively, you're going to come to the same conclusion as Frank Morrison, Malcolm Muggeridge, C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel. They went about disproving, trying to disprove it, and they go, I can't. I embrace it. I believe it. Other religions cannot stand up to that, but Christianity can. Yet we can't argue somebody into salvation. I mean, we can't scientifically push them into receiving Jesus. It still requires a humble willingness. It still requires a change of heart, repentance. But we can break down the barriers to unbelief and open the door to the gospel. That's what apologetics does. So do I ever have a a doubt about my own faith? Yeah. But it's rare and it's only for a brief moment. It's usually one of those things in the middle of the night and I, and I and I question it, and what do I do? I go back. I just look at the world around me. This amazing complexity, the reality of life and death, the prophetic certainty of scripture, and that doubt just goes away. Well, I find that God has given us an abundance of evidence. An abundance of evidence if we'll just take the time to look and to study it. I say this. I say that the truth of the gospel and the eyewitness accounts, it is beyond a reasonable doubt. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father... I thank you that you've given us your word, and your word is truth, and we can trust it. And I thank you that you've given us your son, and your son is life, and we can know him. We can have that life. And God, if there are any here that do not know you personally, I pray that they consider your truth this morning. And I pray that you'd open their eyes to see your glory, your majesty, to hear and understand. Open their hearts to respond to you in humility and repentance and faith. God, if there are any here who haven't done that yet, I pray that they would do it today. You say today is the day of salvation. Wherever you are, if you have not surrendered your life to the Savior of the world... Just right now, you can pray out to him, Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. I fall short of your expectations, but I turned from my sin this morning and I turned to you. I believe that Jesus came and that he died and that he rose again and that he did it to pay the price for my sin. Forgive me, Lord. Give me your free gift of eternal life. Let me share in your divine nature. Let me have a place in your kingdom. God, make me a brand new person in Christ. And give me the strength to follow you today and every day. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.